Hey, a few weeks ago, uh, when I was talking about uh, suffering, um, I recommended a book called When I Lay Down My Isaac. This was a story about uh, Carol Ken, who uh, teaches and preaches, and her son was in the Naval Academy and actually committed murder. Uh, I know some of you have asked for it, so we've bought more in the bookstore, so that's out there. Oh, and one more thing before we get into God's Word. So you 10 o'clock people, if you come this time next week, guess what you'll be doing? Yeah, you'll be sitting in the cafe, okay? Uh, 9 and 11 starts next week. It caught up to us really fast, so you've got to make a decision, all right? So 9 will be less crowded. 11 o'clock, you may be looking for seats. Make sure you figure that out, uh, because at 10 o'clock, we're not going to let you in for 15 minutes. So uh, we'll make more money in the cafe. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, let's look at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. And now here's a verse we've all memorized, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For a better part of a month, through the book of Philippians, we have been looking at joy. And I stated early, and I still believe it today, that Christians should be the most happy, joyful people on the planet. What we've discovered is joy is not based on circumstances. It's not biological. There's, it's nothing of this world. When we come in the relationship with Jesus Christ, it is infused by the Spirit. And, and listen to this. We know the way to God, we know the truth of God, and Jesus is the life of God. How could we not be the most happy people on the planet? Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. Our names are written on the Lamb's book of life. You know, one secular person said it like this years ago. We are on a ball spinning in space. And one day the trap door is going to open and you're either going to fall into a netherland or into the arms of God. Secular writer said that. And we know the truth. We know where we're going. It should produce joy. And the man who's writing about joy is writing from a prison cell. And yet the altars are still filled after every service of people telling me things that are keeping them from joy. So what we want to talk about this morning is the opposite of joy. Paul names it here anxiety. Anybody ever felt anxious? Anybody? The rest of you are lying, right? Um, I love the old King James word. Be careful for nothing. The word careful, the old English word, means to be full of cares. To be weighed down with cares. Jesus said in the parable of the sowers that weeds are like cares. They choke out the word of God. It has no effect. Webster said of anxiety that it is a painful apprehension and uneasiness of mind. Stress. Usually over an anticipated or an expected ill. It's an abnormal or overwhelming sense of apprehension and fear, often marked by physiological signs occurring over doubt about one's ability to cope. And you would think in 2016, with all our technology and all our wealth and all that we've achieved, all of our leisure, that we would have conquered anxiety. And I'll bet you we are more anxious people than we've ever been. Because not only do we have more things to insure, more things to have mortgages about, more things to alarm... We also have this strange thing hanging over us, nuclear proliferation, right? We have ISIS now. We have shootings in malls and movie theaters. This never existed in the history of the world. 
My son was sharing with me one day, he said, Dad, every time I hear someone your age in your generation talk about technology, your frame of reference is always the Jetsons, right? You know, you're always, oh my gosh, we saw this on the Jetsons, I can't believe this is happening. He said, our frame of reference is the end of the world. All the movies of our generation is how the world's going to end or we're going to be conquered by aliens or something. So Jesus said there was coming a day when men's hearts would fail them for the fear of what's coming upon the earth. And even secularists are looking at global warming, nuclear proliferation. So, so there's a lot of stress and anxiety in the world. And the Bible gives an antidote. It gives four things. And I want to go through this. I want you to write them in your Bible. Write them somewhere. And then ponder it during the week. The four antidotes are prayer, meditation, contentment, and generosity. These are all byproducts of the fruit of the Spirit. Prayer, meditation, contentment, and generosity. Now, I've talked exhaustively on most of these. I'm just going to glaze over them. But here's what God did in my life. As I went through these four in Philippians, God said, you know, you need a tweak here or there. But there was one that was like a bullet between my eyes, where God said, you got to make major changes. So I think that's going to happen all across this room. There's going to be one area where you're going to be highly challenged in, and the rest of them will be minor tweaks. So Paul begins here, with prayer. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer, supplication, make your requests known to God, and the peace that passes human understanding will guard your heart and mind. Now, prayer is the beginning because every other one I mentioned is birthed out of prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. That's all it is. People that want to make it more complex or look like they, they have a deeper understanding of prayer, prayer is fellowship and communion with God. If I want to get to know you, I'm going to get a cup of coffee and I'm going to sit down and talk to you. That's how I'll understand who you are. That's how I'll learn about your heart and your desires. Now, I've read all the great books on prayer, right? I've read E.M. Bounds, Andrew Murray, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've read the contemporary guys, John Piper and Tim Keller. And the one thing I pick out of all those books is prayer is unique to all of us. In other words, no one has my relationship to God. Everyone's different. Just like no one in this room has my relationship to my wife, none of us has the same relationship with God. It's all unique. It's all different because we all share our innermost thoughts and our spirit bears witness with his spirit. But Paul does mention here a particular type of prayer. He says prayer with thanksgiving and supplication. Now here's an easy acronym. Most of you have heard it. It's ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So when I sit in my chair or if I'm in my car and I pray, the first thing I do is what Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven. Now that's not a rote prayer. The Pharisees prayed repetitive rote prayers. I just sit there and I bask in who God is. You know, I read the scriptures and I remember God is holy and he's on his throne and he's holding the universe together by the word of his power and I'm just awestruck that I can be in the presence of God. And when you sit in the presence of God, the first thing that comes to your mind isn't this long laundry list of requests. It's confession, to be honest. Oh my gosh, you know, like you beat your breast. Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And you begin to confess your sins like Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. And then you have thanksgiving. Lord, I'm so thankful for all that you've done. And then at the end, you make supplication. The Lord knows that we have needs. You make your request known to God. And... When I read this in Philippians this week, I thought, oh my gosh, this idea of requests has been missing from my life for about 10 years. 
When I was a brand new Christian in 1983, I read a, a book by a young fledgling pastor who was in South Korea who, in order to evangelize his community, needed a bike. And he didn't just say, God, give me a bike. He said, Lord, I would like a red Schwinn bike with black handlebars. And God answered that prayer. He got a red Schwinn bike with black handlebars. And I remember knowing nothing about prayer. I thought, well, if that's what prayer is, I'll do it. And I started to pray that way. I would pray bold, specific prayers. Now, for years, we drove beat-up cars. I mean for years. In fact, I still have 225000 on my current car. But we had cars with no reverse, cars with no heat, no gas gauge. Uh, if you could think of it, we had it, right? So I had this one car with a hole in the driver's side floor, and I would cover it up with a mat. But one day it was raining out, and I hit a puddle, and it was like, whoop! It was like a fire hydrant came into the car. I thought we got in an accident. And I looked in the back seat, and my daughter had all these wet leaves all over her head. <laughs> Probably thinking we're terrible parents. And I remember being somewhere where I saw this white Pontiac van drive in. Kids get out. And I thought, oh, Lord, it would be amazing. That white Pontiac van, that's perfect for us. Now, I don't know where we were at the time, lower middle class, middle class. This was probably like maybe a middle class van. I, I knew this. It was way more expensive than we can afford. We had never bought a new car. And um, so one day my wife wanted to buy a guitar. She was working in youth ministry. And... So she said, Bob, what do you think of this guitar? And she hands me the local, like, town talk. And there's all these guitars listed, and I'm reading this guitar, and right between two guitar listings, there's a Pontiac Transport for sale for a price I think we could probably stretch for. I'm like, that's really odd. It got sandwiched in here. I don't even read the town talk. Then I looked a little closer. It was a mile away. So I drive to this house, and a uh, guy answers the door, and he said, yeah, my mom died. She bought this van, told her not to buy the van, and we're trying to liquidate her assets. I got to tell you, I opened that garage door, and it was white. And I'm like, God, you're amazing. This can't be. Uh, I remember when we started the church. Uh, we had met for eight months, and we couldn't find a building. And I asked God for this little quaint building, and I had a picture of it in my mind, and we would visit places, and I would say, no, this isn't it, this isn't it. And one day, an exterminator friend of mine called me and he said, Bob, you're looking for a church in Delaware County, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, there's this theater. He goes, you're not going to like it, but why don't you check it out anyway? So I called up. The guy opened the door, and it was disgusting, dirty. It was filled with trash. And I looked at it, and I looked at the guy and said, this is it. It was exactly what I had asked God for. Now, the reason I got away from all this is I thought that that was prideful. That we shouldn't pray prayers like this. We shouldn't put God on the spot. Like, in other words, in all humility, God's ways are higher than our ways. And uh, you know what's brought me back to specific praying? Oscar Maru from Nairobi Chapel. Oscar one day back on my deck was telling me about how he started Nairobi Chapel. He was there. He said the janitor was making more than me. He said we had 15 people. And he said, all the stuff I teach now at international conferences, I knew nothing of. He said, I just prayed one prayer. God, give me 25 college students. And that was it. And the rest is history. And I thought, oh my gosh, bold, specific prayers. So as I'm looking at this extension campus now, which is the next thing on our horizon, I'm praying specific prayers. And I can't, I can't wait to take a group of young people and pray those prayers and watch God meet it. John said this. 
Now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, he'll grant us our petitions. James says we have not. Why? Because we ask not. God wants us to ask. And then the other part of James says we have not because we ask not. And sometimes we ask amiss. Right? Like, God, you know I need that Porsche Boxster and I'm going to use it for ministry and I'll, I'll take food to city team. So God, give me that black Porsche Boxster. That's not what we're talking about. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, I can't have confidence, God, because I pray those prayers. I pray that my grandmother wouldn't die. I pray for this person to get healed. You know, we're a young couple. We love children. We pray to have a baby. God has an answer to those prayers. Why does it say that? And I don't know all the answers to those questions, but I know there's a story in the Bible about Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Jesus loved them. He stayed at their house often. And one day Lazarus was sick and they sent for Jesus and Jesus waited three or four days and he finally came. And Martha runs out and she does what we always do. She says, Lord, if you had come here when we called, my brother would have never died. Isn't it amazing how we could tell God how to run his universe? And he walks her theologically through that and he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a wonderful story. But I think back to Martha's spirit. She's also the one who, when Jesus was over, she was doing all the cooking. And that's necessary, right? Mary, her sister, is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha runs out and she said, tell my sister she should be in here working. And listen to what Jesus said about Martha's spirit. Martha you are encumbered. You are careful. You are weighed down with many things. And Mary had chosen the better part. Does that mean we can't work in the kingdom? Does that mean we don't cook and do things? Certainly not. We, we had those giftings. But, but Martha, all through her life, was weighed down. There was something dragging her down. And he said, Mary has chosen the better part. I don't know why God says no some of the time, but there are these stories. And these stories help us because there's sometimes things aren't going to go the way we want. It doesn't mean we still don't come to God in confidence and in prayer. I look at prayer as shifting the weight. And here's one of the major tweaks in my life. Like in our organization, we want to shift the weight around the departments and our families shift the weight, you know, for responsibilities. Uh, when I get anxious, I have taken on way too much weight and concern. And prayer is the mechanism where I shift it back on God. Peter said, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Verse 7 says, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. It will, it'll be supernatural. It'll be of grace. You, you don't understand why you feel the way you do. But you know that God has calmed you. David, all the saints, walk through this. So, for some of you, a little minor tweak. Some of you, prayer hasn't even part of your life. You're a young Christian. You're a new Christian. And you're not communing with God. You, you know, you're praying in a crisis. That's not a relationship. Prayer needs to happen every day. It needs to be systematic. You and God alone, reading the scriptures. Some of you need to take that next step, and it should be joyful. And I believe the Spirit will let you know where you are on that one. The second one that is critically important to bring joy back to your life is meditation. Look at verse 8. 
Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, meditating is far more biblical than it is New Age. The psalmist said that he meditated day and night on the Word of God, and he was like a tree planted by living waters and brought forth fruit in every season. It means to ruminate, to process in your mind. Now, I don't know about you, but whatever I'm putting into my mind, that's what I ruminate about. So, you know, when I cut the grass, when I have quiet time, when I'm in my car, the things I'm putting in is what's coming out. I was in a hotel one time. I got up early. They had one of those continental breakfasts. They had flat screens all over, which I hate. And uh, I found myself drawn to watching it. And, and I'm looking at morning TV at 7.30 in the morning. And the first thing on the TV is a grocery store robbery. And they have the security cameras. You can watch the whole thing go down. The next thing is this major accident on a freeway. And then finally they end it with tornadoes ripping apart this community. And I'm like, Lord, I want to go back to bed. I'm afraid to walk outside the door. How would anybody start their day this way? How would you ingest all that fear and think God's going to bless anything you're going to do in the day? And the thing we have to remember is what we put into the mind, and the brain's an amazing thing. What we put in is eventually going to come out. And so why every time I take a shower does the music from Psycho come back? Why every time I go into the ocean do I hear that beat from Jaws, right? Everything put in comes out. Jesus said it's not what comes out of a man that defiles him. It's, what, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, what comes out. But what comes out of our heart is what we put into the mind. You know, you look out what's in our culture, Fifty Shades of Grey, these horror movies, worldly lyrics. And we ingest this stuff 24-7 and we think somehow we're going to have a proper worldview or a proper thinking or a mechanism and, and we're, we're deceiving ourselves. You know, I, I, I so enjoy Ken Graves this past week because, you know, and I know Ken's overboard sometimes, right? But I thought he was right on Wednesday talking about man and woman. We need to hear that. We live in a day where, where young kids in grade school are being taught things about genders we never considered. My daughter Googled genders. There's 66 genders now. God makes it easy. In the beginning, he made the male and female. Two. It works. It's always worked. And, and, and how are we ever going to get a worldview? You know, we're becoming like these cable TV shows where, what do you think about gender? Well, I think that nobody cares what any of us think. It's what does God's word say? And it's only when you ingest and meditate on the right things can you have a possible, correct view of the world. The Bible says we have to take every thought captive. And before you ever take a thought captive, you have to watch what gets into the mind. Uh, most anxiety, most worry is irrational. It's fear-based. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. It's irrational for a few reasons. Number one, Jesus said, look at the lilies of the field or the sparrows. God cares for them. You don't think he's going to care for you? It's irrational and it's actually inconsistent with who we believe God to be. You know, again, Jesus said every hair on our head is numbered. And then again, it's fear-based. You know, advertising, fear-based. 
Uh, there's a great book out by Barry Glasner called The Culture of Fear and Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. Um, Glasner debunks one of the classic fears uh, that we all learned way back in the day when we were five or six. He said there's never been a single confirmed death or injury from a stranger poisoning Halloween candy since the scare started in 1958. How many of you brought home that sack of candy, opened it up, and you couldn't wait to indulge, and then your parents said, no, they got to open it and inspect it because there's a razor blade or somebody's going to poison you, right? Glazner goes on to say that uh, no matter how catchy the phrase going postal may be, postal workers actually are two and a half times less likely to be killed on their jobs than the average worker. Most things we fear never happen. And God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. So I want to challenge you in the age that we live where advertising gives us so many thoughts, so many fear-based thoughts per minute. I want to challenge you. What are you letting in the ear gate? What are you letting in the eye gate? Some of you never heard anything like this before. You know, I used to, when I got saved, I used to drive to church listening to rock music all the way there and rock music all the way home. And then one day it dawned on me, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm listening to sex, drugs, and rock and roll in a worldview, and then I'm trying to listen to the Bible, and then God had me get rid of all that. And I can't tell you what's right or wrong, I can just challenge you that the mind is to be renewed, it needs to be washed in the water of God's word. C.S. Lewis said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them, for they are not the thing themselves, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and the news from a country we have not visited. We were made to experience wonderful things, but we have to make sure they're lovely and are of a good report. So where are you on this one? few minor tweaks or radical changes. You've got to figure it out. The third one is contentment. I love this. Verse 10. Paul said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, you just lacked the opportunity. Speaking materially here. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to be ab to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned to be full and to be hungry, to abound and suffer need, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many times have you quoted that out of verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, I can do all things. No, you can't. You can only do the things you've been gifted to do. Paul is speaking about material need here, and listen, he said he learned to be content. He learned it. You know what that tells me? It doesn't come naturally. So we've been learning how to be happy and joyful. You know, I could teach you how, or I don't even have to teach you how to be unhappy, right? Think about it. All you have to do is compare yourself to someone else who's doing better, and you are guaranteed to be unhappy. Set unrealistic expectations for your life. Always blame someone else, and you will be an unhappy person. But for the true joy of the Lord to be a part of your life, you have to learn contentment. I was at a funeral for my coach a couple months ago. I met up with a lot of old players. A lot of them are highly successful, judges, lawyers, 
driving Escalades and you know, it, it was a very easy time to compare. And, and I sat there and I was so content with my journey and what God had called me to do. And I'm a very content person when it comes to material things. But believe it or not, this is the one where God told me I need to make major changes. I analyzed my life and I thought contentment is something I struggle with. Not materialistic, not in what I do. But there's some form of non-contentment in me related to activity in my life. Somehow I always see the, the sand going out of the hourglass or something more to accomplish or putting the pedal to the metal. And Paul said, look, I've suffered need, I've abounded, I've been hungry. Paul said, I've been in it, and I've learned to be content. It has to be learned. And the way we learn contentment is, you know, we, we, we read the scriptures, we understand that God has a path for each and every one of us. People that choose full-time ministry will never be rich, but that's their choice. And there's so many choices we're going to make in life that are going to lead us to a place where, yeah, if you look at somebody else, you're going to say, oh my gosh, and, and you're going to have unrealistic expectations, it's going to make you miserable, and then you never know what that person's experiencing. You know, the grass is always greener until you get to the other side, and they've got crabgrass just like you do. There's not a car dealer in America when you walk in, is going to say, you know what, keep what you got. It's running well, it's getting you from point A to B, just keep it. Don't take on this $800 a month payment, it's going to burden you in debt, just keep what you got. You know, the world's never going to teach you to be content. I told that story one time, I was cutting through the mall, and I cut through a department store, and I was in the towel department, and I could care less what towel I use, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we have inferior towels. We need to get all new towel. Like, this is what America does to us. And it goes to every area of life, and Paul said, I've learned to be content. And I share with you, this is my struggle. Again, not, not in a materialistic way, but in some some weird, esoteric, you know, what am I accomplishing? Let me give you a gauge, because you might be feeling the same way. You might be discontent if you feel an all-too-frequent sense of boredom or emptiness. This is a Christian. You find yourself suffer, sur surfing through the channels of your television set, almost frantically searching for something that will satisfy your inner hunger. Your job is chronically frustrating, but so was the last one. Your spouse is demanding but unexciting, and you wonder if you're really meant to be together. Your spiritual interests are far less intense. In fact, they're almost non-existent at times. And you're too often lonely. Sign that you're not content. And we're all going to get in that place somewhere, right? Ecclesiastes 3, there's a season for this. We're all going to navigate the highs and lows of life. But we've got to sort these things out with God. We, we've got to come to a place like Paul, we can say, you know, whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. And again, all through this room, there's a couple of little tweaks in this one. For some of you, it's an aha moment. For some of you, you need fellowship. You need to get around other Christians. Some of you need to get into the Word. You need, to, you need to plumb the depths of what God's called you to do. The final one is generosity. 
Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Another classic verse. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Generosity is such a key to joy. In fact, I was thinking about this and I thought, I have never met a generous person who was greedy, mean, or unhappy. Have you? You know, I have never met a grouchy person who spends all day giving their money away. Just never have seen it. Generous people are effervescent. They're just wonderful to be around. And, And what's striking here, again, this is supernatural. I think one of the early things Christ does when he comes into a heart, he takes a closed fist and he opens it. He makes us generous. Now, money's a strange thing. It really is. Um, There is a lifelong battle with money. We know money's not the problem. It's the love of money. You know, the monster of more and greed resides in all of us. And it's way down deep in there. And one of the ways we break the, the monster of more is when we give. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. The beautiful thing is Jesus said, given it shall be given back to you, good measure pressed over, men will give to you. Here Paul said, my God will supply all your needs. We get in this system of replenishment where when we give, God gives more. And we get in this flow with God. But when we hold on, we become like the Dead Sea, right? The Dead Sea has, has no outlet. We become stagnant. Uh, the greatest story to me in the Gospels regarding this is in Luke 19 where Zacchaeus We're told he was a chief tax collector. Now, if you were a run-of-the-mill tax collector, you were the scum of the earth. He's the chief. This guy's hated by everyone in Israel. And he's of small stature, so he gets up in a tree and he wants to hear Jesus teach and preach. And Jesus points at him. He said, I'm coming to your house today. And he just breaks. Because no religious leader would even look upon this man. And he says this in verse 8. He said, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've wronged or cheated anyone, I'm going to give them fourfold. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to your house. Well, salvation didn't come to his house because he gave his money away. God broke his heart, then he gave his money away. In other words, faith produced action in him. One of the things I've never seen before in this story is that Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give half of all I have to the poor. Something in his heart changed about poor people. Now, here's what money does to you and me. And it does it to every one of us, even as Christians. We place our significance on the amount of money we make, our stature, and even our security. You know it and I know. If you're in the upper, upper middle class, you look at people in the middle class differently. People in the middle class look at people in the lower class differently. And we all look at the poor the same way. Most of us look at the poor like, oh my gosh, we want to be compassionate. We'll give you a little bit of money. 
But basically inside, most of us think, oh my gosh, if they would just make different choices or get off their duff, or if I was in that position, things would be different. No. If you were dealt the same cards, you would probably be in the same position. Everyone in this room has benefited from education or maybe parents that read to you or you were born into a system or a structure. You had education and, and, and we go down a list of a thousand things. But right away his, his idea of the poor switched. And it fascinates me because, because Judas, remember when the woman broke the alabaster box of ointment, the perfume, and she anointed Jesus for burial? That perfume was worth a year's wages. And what did What did Judas say? Oh my gosh, what a waste. What a waste. This money should have been taken and given to the poor. And the next verse said he didn't care about the poor, but he cared about himself because his money was in, he was the treasurer, his hand was in the bag. Zacchaeus' heart was changed because Jesus had become his treasure. And because Jesus was his treasure, he treasured the things God treasures even the poor. Jesus said, don't put your money on earth where thieves break in, steal, moth, and rust destroy, but send your treasure ahead to heaven. That's where our treasure is. Jesus is our treasure. When Jesus is your treasure, you'll love the rich. When Jesus is your treasure, you'll love the poor. When Jesus is your treasure, you'll give away your money joyfully and happily and consistently. Paul said God loves a cheerful giver. When you understand the treasure that Jesus is and that people are made in his image, everything changes. And every time I give in an offering or every time I write a check that goes to a foreign mission or whenever I'm generous to someone, it breaks the monster of more in my life and it shows me where my true treasure is. And when I am generous, I am joyful. When I'm holding on, I'm miserable. And I share with you all these things go together. A prayer life. The overflow is joy. Being content with the things that I have. Being generous. Meditating on the right things. All of these. I'm not saying all anxiety is going to cease because we live in a crazy age. And I'm not saying some anxiety doesn't need medication. I'm not saying all these things. I'm saying generally this is the antidote. This keeps us in the pocket joy and radiance and the fruit of the Spirit. I'll end with this study that was done in northern New Jersey. They found a pocket of people, census after census, that were outliving most people in that region by 10 to 15 years. So they gathered money and they went in and did a study, and right away, of course, they always think it's what you're eating, right? And uh, so they go up there and they found out, no, it's not what they're eating. In fact, they're eating way more fat, way more carbohydrates than the average American because they came from Russia. They're eating lard and all this stuff. So it wasn't what they were eating. They checked the water. They had the same water everybody had. Schools, you know, they, they went down the list and all of a sudden, you know what, the, this is a secular study. You know what their finding was? These people were outliving everybody because they lived in community. They watched each other's kids. They sat on porches. They went to the same schools. They laughed around tables. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man. It's what comes out. Joy comes from the heart. And again, we should be the happiest people that have ever lived.
You know, it's very popular to eat clean. I sat next to someone the other day. I'm eating clean now. I'm eating organic. You know, we're running around spending twice as much money to eat the same stuff. And, and I'm thinking, but what are we doing to our spirit? What are we doing to our hearts? You know, we're eating egg whites and we're reading Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, it's not going to work. God has called us to wholeness and completeness and oneness, a poverty of spirit. And that's why a man in a prison cell can write to us 2,000 years later and write about joy. Because joy is the mark of who we are. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that plugged into you, abiding in you, we are plugged into the source of all joy.